Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's good to always remind ourselves of the context of what we're doing as we go through the catechism. The catechism is not just a great big hodgepodge of doctrines taught with little or no rationale. The catechism is a very deliberate and organized activity of the church. It lays out the whole way of salvation from beginning to end. And in the catechism, the church is teaching us from God's Word. First of all, in the, in the beginning, going through the 12 articles of the Apostles' Creed, teaching us from God's Word what God wants us to believe in order to be partakers in His grace. And then the Catechism moves on to the Ten Commandments and teaches us from God's Word how God wants us to live in grace and thankfulness. And then third... And that's what we're going through right now. The Catechism deals with the Lord's Prayer and, and teaches us from God's Word how God wants us to pray for more and more of His grace and His Holy Spirit. Now, from the beginning, the Lord Jesus teaches us to put God first in our prayer, our Father in heaven. That's where we start. That's who we start with. And we begin our prayers with a desire that his name be lifted up, exalted and hallowed. And we, we, we pray that that would not happen just in our prayers, but in our hearts and in our lives. And since the name of God is hallowed and exalted in his kingdom, wherever the knee is bowed to his lordship and tongues confess his sovereignty, we therefore pray, your kingdom come. In other words, may the, the number of those who bow the knee grow abundantly, and may everything that lifts itself up against your authority be brought to nothing. And since wherever God's kingdom is established, men, women, and children joyfully submit to his will, we pray for that in the third petition, your will be done. And this is this is of vital importance. There is a, a strong and unbreakable connection between the, the name of God, the kingdom of God, the will of God. And it's a sad thing that in this age of willful and humanistic Christianity, men have separated what God has put together. There's a lot of Christianity that loves to sing, Lord, we lift your name on high. Lord, we love to sing your praises. There's a lot of Christianity today which loves to sing, you are my king, but which chokes on the words, your will be done. And yet, Jesus the king himself teaches us that it is impossible to be a citizen of his kingdom unless we know how to submit to his will. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, says Jesus. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So God's kingdom is where God's rule is supreme, where his decrees are followed, where his law is obeyed, where his will is sovereign. And so Jesus teaches us to pray, your will be done. And you can notice that the answer is kind of divided into two little paragraphs here on page 562, and we'll look at each one of them. The first paragraph 
reminds us that God's will ought to be done because of its surpassing excellence. It alone is good. Now, the Lord Jesus, when he teaches us to pray this, he's teaching us to do something that he himself did. We we read about that in Matthew chapter 26. When he wasn't here on earth, when he was here on earth, he prayed in the garden, not my will, but your will be done. And as we read that, perhaps you were surprised. How was it possible for Jesus to make a distinction between his will and God's will? Isn't Jesus 100% God? So how can he talk about God's will and, and his will as two separate things? We need to remember that the Lord here is speaking as the last Adam, as the Mashiach, the, the Messiah, the Christos, the, the, the Christ, the anointed one, who has a job to do as the Messiah. And in doing that job, to which he was ordained at his baptism, he on purpose limited himself. He put aside his heavenly glory. He humbled himself. He limited the use of his divine powers in order to give himself fully to his role as the last Adam who would suffer and die in order to bring about a new humanity. And that's why, for instance, in another place, he says that no one knows the day and hour of his coming, not even the Son, but only the Father. And when he says that, he's speaking about himself as the Son incarnate here on earth in his role as Messiah who will die for the men, women, and children that God redeems. And so when Jesus makes a distinction between his will and the will of God the Father, He's not speaking as the eternal Son of God, who, of course, knows everything that the Father knows, but he's speaking as Christ, as the Messiah, as the Son of Man, the one who said in John chapter 6, I am come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And as the Messiah, Christ recognized what the first Adam forgot. That God's will alone is good. Now, does that mean to say that Jesus' will was bad? Well, of course not. He was totally human, yet he was without sin. He didn't have a, a sinful will. So what distinguishes God's will from Jesus' will? When he was here on earth in his state of humiliation, what, what distinguishes the two is that God could see the whole picture. And Jesus in his state of humiliation, couldn't. All his life, Jesus had to live by faith in the power of the Spirit, learning and living by the Word of God in the Scriptures. And all his life, Jesus was fulfilling the prophecy of Psalm 40. We sang it a little earlier. He was always desirous to do God's will and, and God's will alone. In John chapter 4, he says to his disciples, he says, my food, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And so in all of his life on this earth, Jesus has been dedicating himself to following God's will precisely, joyfully, completely as that will is revealed. In every word and thought and action, he's been consciously walking along the path laid before him by the will of God and revealed in the Scriptures. 
And he's been faithfully fulfilling the office placed upon him by God's will. And now all of a sudden, after a lifetime of following God's will, at all costs, this brings the Lord Jesus to the very brink of hell. And in front of him, there is a gaping pit. In front of him, the path of obedience, the path of following God's will, promises to lead him through the most unimaginable suffering and agony. It promises to to lead him, in fact, into the very mouth of hell, to continue to go forward, to do what God's will has ordained to be done, means that Jesus will have to take upon himself the infinite burning wrath of God against our sin. It means that not only will he be rejected by men, but that even the sun will hide its face from him. It means that even his beloved father will forsake him as he fulfills the prophecy of Psalm 22. And as he will hang there, his body crushed and tortured, his soul and body being rent apart, suspended between heaven and earth and rejected by both, accepted by neither, all alone in the universe. That's where this path of obedience is leading him. And as Jesus considers what lies before him, He cries out to God. He says, God, is there any other way? Is there any other way that we can save the church, that we can redeem an innumerable multitude of unworthy sinners without me having to go through what lies before me here? And so here we see the Lord Jesus in all the vulnerability of his humanity, in the state of humiliation. How can he possibly will to proceed along a path that means rejection and separation from his beloved father. And so in the Garden of Gethsemane, he pours himself out in prayer to God. He he sweats drops of blood as he considers the suffering and agony that await him on the path along which God's will is leading him. But he knows that God's will is good. He knows that if this is what God wants to happen, then this is what has to happen. He knows that God has the whole picture. And so he confesses, not my will, but your will be done. You see how it's the total opposite of the fall? Adam and Eve looking at something which God said, that's not my will, don't do that. And they're saying, wow, that looks really attractive. We think we should do that. And here's the opposite. There's something very, very unattractive and unpleasant. And God is saying, this is the way. And the Lord Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. And this is the Jesus who is teaching us to pray this afternoon. He comes to us with his word and spirit, and he teaches us to pray that same prayer. Your will be done. And the Lord Jesus knows how hard it can be to pray that prayer. He knows what it's like when you're faced with a situation in which you are just terrified of following God's will. Because it's going to hurt. 
Sometimes as you walk along the path of life by, by God's will, you're suddenly confronted with great suffering and, and pain, perhaps the pain of separation from someone you love, perhaps a, a painful disease or sometimes a painful treatment. And sometimes going forward and, and obeying the will of God in whatever circumstance means almost certainly great suffering and you look at that painful thing that God has willed you to go through and you cry out to God you say God I'm scared I don't want to go through that I, I can't and then the Lord Jesus comes to us and he says my beloved I know what that's like I know that by experience and I know that God's will is good I know that he averts all evil or turns it to your benefit. And on the other side of this pain, there are the good results which God has ordained according to his eternal will. Now, sometimes you know ahead of time about the good that will come after the suffering. A mother, for instance, who's going to labor, and if she's had a child before, she knows that it's painful. But she also knows what comes afterwards. She knows the joy when you hold in your arms that gift of new life. So sometimes you, you know beforehand the good thing that's coming after the pain. But sometimes you don't. Sometimes you have no idea what God is doing. And we really can't imagine, Lord, I don't know how this can possibly turn out for anybody's good. I really don't. And then the Lord Jesus teaches us to pray earnestly, Lord, help us that we without murmuring may obey your will, for it alone is good. Now these words, murmuring and obey in the catechism, they remind us of how different we are from Jesus the Messiah. He, he confessed the words, thy will be done, we beseech God with the same words to change our hearts and to give us the attitude that Jesus had. Jesus had a perfect human will, sinless, perfectly consonant with God's holy will. We have imperfect and, and sinful human wills. And sometimes when God, our King, sends us along a path that we think we, we, we don't think we can enjoy, then we start complaining, we kick up a stink, and we, and we grumble, and we're like the people of Israel. And we say, well, why did you do this? And why are you bringing us along this, this way? And why do we have to walk through this forsaken desert anyway? Can it really be worth it with all this inconvenience and suffering to get to the promised land? Why can't we just go back to Egypt, where at least we had water and vegetables, and we had stuff to eat? And we're like that. And the Lord Jesus knows that we're like that. He knows that we have the tendency to get bitter when life isn't working out the way we think it should. And so Jesus teaches us to pray. He teaches us to, to plead with God, Oh God, change my attitude. Give me your grace. Give me the spirit of Jesus. Let me joyfully submit to your will. Let me humbly accept what you ordain for my life.
Yes, Lord, how we need you to work change in us. Because we're quick to do what we think is best. And we're very slow to follow your decrees. And when the path along which you are leading us gets too tough, too painful, too steep, then we lose confidence in you. We complain, we murmur, and we start looking for a way out that suits our will. That sometimes happens when we're facing suffering that we we think we, we really don't deserve. We, we lose a loved one much earlier than we judge necessary. We're tempted to fall in love with a boy or a girl who is not a believer in the Lord. We know it's against God's will. We might lose out on a job because we won't compromise our faith. Sometimes doing the right thing costs us money. And sometimes... Our physical and mental or our financial health are shot to pieces. And sometimes submitting ourselves to God's will means being sidelined and despised by the world or even worse, made fun of, criticized, mocked by friends, neighbors, family, or fellow believers. And whatever it is, in these cases, it's so easy to cry out to God and say, God, that's not fair. Your will for my life is too hard. I can't handle it. I can't keep going down this path that you've laid out for me because it hurts. I don't want to. I can't submit. It hurts too much. It costs too much. I'm really not sure it's worth it. Where is all this going to get me? And then the Lord Jesus puts his finger on our lips. And he says, shh. Don't be talking like that. Pray. Pray. Pray for your life. Pray. Oh God, your will be done. Even when I don't understand. Not my will. Because my will is riddled with selfishness and foolishness and sin. And all the stupidity that comes with that. Not my will, oh God. Your will, oh Holy Spirit of Jesus, take a hold of me. Don't let me go. Don't let me give in to what my old nature wills. But help me to make the hard decisions. Help me to take up my cross, deny myself, follow Christ at any cost. Oh God, let me follow Jesus. He submitted himself to your will, even when it meant blood and agony and hell. But your will led him through that, through suffering, to glory. The glory of the kingdom. The glory of the name which is above every other name. And so, Lord, establish in me and through me the glory of your kingdom as I submit myself to your will. And, Lord, not just me. You see the catechism there? We and all men. Not just me. Please make men and women and children everywhere humble themselves under your holy will. And so expand your kingdom. Magnify the glory of your holy name. Now that's what we see when when Isaiah describes the, the coming kingdom in the chapter we read from Isaiah. He's prophesying about that day when all the nations will flow into the kingdom, when all the peoples of the earth will stop following their sinful and selfish will, when all the peoples that on earth do dwell will delight to submit to the holy will of God, when all men will delight to obey 
his law of love. That's what we're praying for. We're saying, Lord, start with me, but let it be universal that your will be done so that your kingdom may come. You see, where man's will is supreme, we have the foretaste of hell. But where God's will is supreme, we have the foretaste of heaven, even if it's in affliction. And that's why we pray with longing, your will be done. You know what we're actually praying? We're praying this. We're saying, Lord, don't let me be like Adam, but change me to be like Jesus. And when we pray, God hears. And when God hears prayer, God acts. He hears our petition, and he works powerfully in us by his word and by his spirit. He takes that will of ours, which is used to being so selfish and so rebellious, And he sanctifies and bends and changes our will. He makes it spiritually alive. He heals it. He corrects it pleasantly. And at the same time, powerfully, he bends it. Yes, he makes all the consequences of regeneration blossom and flower and multiply. He grants us the changed attitudes that we ask him for. And along with a radical change in attitude, he grants us a radical change in life. And that's what we'll see in the second part here, the last paragraph of the the Lord's Day. Because the Lord Jesus teaches us to pray your will be done because God's will is supremely good and only good. And he also, with that prayer, teaches us to plead that God would work in us a prompt obedience to that will. Now, what we're praying for in the third petition is that God would change the way we are in our fallen nature. Adam decided that his will alone was good, and that got us into a lot of trouble. That brought the kingdom of darkness into the world. So we, we pray for radical change, an attitude of seeking God's will, not ours. Now, Adam, when he decided that his will was better than God's, Together with that, he decided that it wasn't necessary to do the job that God had given him. And so he failed in in his office as ruler of the world, and that had disastrous consequences for him and for us and for the whole creation. He, He failed in his office as a husband, and because of that, God cursed the earth. And so when we pray this petition, we're praying, Lord, don't just change our attitudes, but change the way we live, change the way We carry out the jobs that you give us to do in this life. And for, I'll use as an example here a a sailing metaphor. It's nice weather for sailing, ladies, so we'll we'll, we'll go sailing. Imagine the church is a, a large sailing ship, and our former captain, Adam, had a bad compass, which pointed to man, not to God. And so we went in the wrong direction. And to make things worse, Captain Adam totally ignored the charts which map the way that God wants us to go, and so we got shipwrecked. But now we're sailing on a new ship, the the redemption, and our captain is Jesus. And he's taught us to navigate with a good compass, to, to orientate ourselves according to God's will and not ours. He's taught us to trust and to follow the charts 
and the charts map out for us the voyage and show us how to avoid the rocks and the islands and the reefs which stand between us and the final destination, which is the port of heaven. So that's how the scriptures function, as, as charts by which our journey is mapped out for us. Now, it's easy to sail when the skies are blue, when the visibility is great, when we can see with our own eyes that the compass and the charts are guiding us safely onwards. But sometimes it gets misty and stormy and the visibility is almost zero and that's when we really have to start trusting. We have to trust the compass of God's will that it's pointing us in the right direction. We have to trust the, the charts of the scriptures that they accurately lay out for us the right passage between the dangerous reefs and the rocks. And as we inch forward taking soundings, looking how deep the channel is, we hear the waves crashing and breaking with a roar and the reefs and the rocks, and we can be very afraid. And then we simply have to go forward, trusting completely and implicitly in our captain, our compass, and our chance. And as Jesus guides us along through dangerous and rocky and narrow stormy passages, he tells us, Trust me, this is the only way to get to where we are going. But it's not enough to trust our captain, our compass, and our charts. We also need to act. We need to obey. We need to do our jobs. Now, this idea of office, you see it in the last paragraph here of the, the Lord's Day, this idea of office and calling was rediscovered during the Great Reformation. You see, the followers of Rome, the followers of the Pope, they had come to understand and to teach that the church was like a big ship sailed by the clergy, by the ministers and bishops and stuff, and the members were simply paying passengers. They were just along for the ride. And the Reformation rediscovered the biblical truth that every single member of the church has an office and a calling in the church, in the world, in all of life. Every single member of the body of Christ has a job to do. So let's get back to the, the ship redemption as it navigates through the narrow, rocky, stormy passage. Somebody is at the bow sounding, taking soundings to, to see that we have enough uh, depth to, to, to navigate forward and that we're at the right spot on the chart. Others are in the bottom of the boat, bailing out the water, which is flooding in because of the storm. Others are taking in or adjusting the sails, and it's a very delicate operation. It depends on everyone doing their job faithfully. If anybody slips up, we can all perish. Now, let's imagine that no one's doing their job. Imagine it's kind of cold and rainy, so we all crowd into the cabin with hot chocolate, out of the rain, out of the storm, and we're all looking at the compass and the charts, and we're all nodding wisely and saying, yes, 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 this, we all agree, this is the right way to go. Yes, that's the right way. But nobody's doing their job. And if nobody's doing their jobs, we're not going to get very far. If the man taking the soundings is afraid of getting wet, then we're going to smash on the rocks. If the, the people bailing out the water in the hold find their job too unpleasant, we're going to sink. And if the people charged with working the sails aren't faithful in their work, we might make no headway against the wind or the mast might break in the storm. And that's the way it is in the kingdom of God. That's the way it is in the church. We're not just along for the ride. We all have a job to do. 
We all have an office and a calling. We can't sit around warm and dry, nodding wisely as we agree about God's will and the Scriptures. No, we got to get out there into the storm of this world, and we have to do it. And the only way the church will move forward through the storms of life and the rocks of this world is through cheerful, prompt, and total obedience. If the chart tells us there are shoals ahead, if the soundings tell us that we are almost upon them, if Captain Jesus tells us to take a hard turn to port, we don't sit there thinking about it or discussing it. We jump up and we do it immediately. We all leap into action and do our jobs. That's the way the angels do it. They hear God's command and they fly to do his will. Sometimes as parents, we wish our children were more like that, right? They don't second guess. They don't murmur. They don't challenge. They don't question. They know implicitly that God's will is good, and they do it. They do it willingly. They do it faithfully. They do it immediately. Now, perhaps the Lord Jesus has given you a job to do, which you find rather unpleasant or even useless. You may be saying, Lord, why have you made my life the way you've made my life? I don't like it. Maybe you feel like the guy that's stuck in the dark, crammed hold. You're bailing water, and you think, this is not very glorious work. It's tiring, and it's cold, and it's miserable, and it's painful, and it's wet, and it's uncomfortable. I don't like it. You need to know that as the church journeys onto her destination, your job is very important. And God has a reason for putting you where you are. There is no office, no calling, no job, no situation that God might call us to experience or to undertake that we are allowed to say, no, God, that's too hard, it's too unpleasant, it's too painful, it's too difficult, I am not going to do it. That's not an option. When God calls us to hard tasks, when he puts us in hard life situations, when our imperfect human nature rebels within us and we say, no, Lord, I can't go through this. I can't do this. Then Jesus teaches us the solution. Jesus teaches us to pray. Oh God, your will be done. Oh God, make me a servant of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Help me to live the life you've given me, to do the job you've given me, to carry out my office and my calling wholeheartedly for God and not for men. And so the Catechism teaches us the supreme excellence of God's will, that it alone is good, and the Catechism instructs us to plead with God that he would so work in us that we act out that will, that we do it cheerfully and willingly. You see, in the last line of Lord's Day 49, he's, the, the Catechism says, as willingly and faithfully as the angels in heaven. And that's a good explanation. 
that's an old explanation. It's explaining what it means. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Obviously, who's in heaven? The angels, right? So that's a great explanation that the Catechism has. It's a very old explanation. It goes back about 1,500 years to our brother Augustine. And it's a perfectly good explanation. But it's not the only one. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Who else is there in heaven? Besides the angels who do the will of God, there is in heaven also a real man, our flesh and blood, who perfectly did the will of God. That man is like us. He knows us. He knows what it is like to suffer on this earth. He knows what it is like to learn through suffering what it is to trust and to obey. He knows what it is to submit to God's will even when it hurts. And this man knows how much glorious joy there is in store for those who follow God's will through the valley of death and pain and suffering into eternal glory. And that man's name is Jesus. And it is this Jesus who is teaching us to pray, your will be done. It is this Jesus who helps us to pray, your will be done. And it is this Jesus who comes to us through his Holy Spirit as an answer to our prayers. And when we pray, oh Lord, help me love your will. Help me live your will. Then Jesus comes to us. And he does exactly that. Jesus the teacher. Jesus the helper. Jesus the answer to our prayers. And our prayer only makes sense because of Jesus. And through Jesus. And in Jesus. Jesus. And so we end with this apostolic prayer from Hebrews chapter 13, 20. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.